Hello everyone, welcome to Pensive Politics Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson, and guys, I am so happy to be back with you doing one of my monologues. It has been a very long while. I, I'm trying to keep these monologues consistent, but the, the rate of guests that we have, the, the, the quality of guests we have, all kind of things that is going on in the production of Pensive Politics is really, really reappropriating my time onto different things. But just, I am happy to be back with you guys to talk more about the issues of the day, talk more about philosophy and how all of this relates to the the cosmic intellectual tradition of America, our freedom, our natural rights, so on and so forth. So today we'll be talking about a few things. We'll be talking about, number one, the idea of contact tracing, because there's been a push in in weeks past by Mayor Michael Bloomberg, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, York, those those two geniuses, of course, those two geniuses of the state who have decided that we need more um, contact tracers and have used countries like South Korea and Singapore as models for how we should do contact tracing, uh, even though both those countries do not have the foundation of liberty and freedom that America has. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump's recent spat over the past few days. For those of you who do not know, on Monday, Nancy Pelosi called Donald Trump morbidly obese. On Tuesday, Donald Trump said she had mental issues. And on uh, then on today, Wednesday, Nancy Pelosi said he has mental problems, that he is a confabulator or whatever words she could find, pull out of the thesaurus to try to attack her political opponents. How how honest. And so, but it's just, thank you guys so much for being here. It's awesome. It's awesome. And for my listeners, thank you so much for being here as well. So, contact tracing. And this is a subject that I actually had a conversation with Mr. Yaron Brook with. Yaron Brook, for those of you who do not know, is the chairman of the Ayn Rand Institute. In fact, he came on the show. We actually, that was our first video interview, our first pensive video, so to speak. We'll be calling those pensive videos from now on. And Yaron Brook had an interesting position on it for someone who was enmeshed in the freedom tradition. Because Yaron Brook is very much enmeshed in the freedom tradition. I mean, Put aside the fact that he is an objectivist, because objectivists do believe in freedom, although they have a lot of other oddities in their their paradigms and their philosophical systems that I don't particularly agree with. The idea of aesthetics that Ayn Rand um, recited in the Romantic Manifesto is one of them. Um, the idea of, uh, of, of, of mysticism, anything that is not immediately perceptible to us being mystic or being something that is irrational is also things I don't agree with. But at the core of objectivism is indeed the primacy of the individual, the primacy of individual freedom. And with the primacy of individual freedom, what you get is you get when you have a society, or not a society, because society is not this grandiose thing that folks think it is. Society is really just you and me collaborating. Society is the sum of micro-interactions that take place in individualized settings. When a government is situated around the individual, you have more prosperity for the individual, not because the government is doing anything for the individual, but because the individual is free to do things for themselves. So when you have an objectivism viewpoint, you tend to have a philosophy or a identity that is much better for the individual. So while I agree with objectivists on that, I think that they are wrong on numerous issues, but even amongst objectivists, Yaron Book has a very controversial opinion, and his opinion is that contact tracing should be utilized to protect public health. Not, 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 misnomer. To protect individual health. 
Euron, like me, thinks the idea of public health is dubious, it's a misnomer, it's principally and philosophically corrupt, in my opinion. Uh, Euron does not think that the idea of public health is really, really something that we need to cling on to. But he does think the idea of, of individual health, and health is really an individual trait, is that which we need to respect and adhere to. So Euron certainly thinks that contact tracing can be used to protect individual health, and many people in the natural rights tradition, many libertarians or conservatives who are concerned about protecting the individual's rights will also, in some instances, agree that you need to do some things like that to protect individual rights. And there can be an argument made for it, too. But contact tracing, for those of you who do not know, is this idea that if you have been infected, and given the fact that the incubation period for the virus is so many days, many folks don't know if they're infected. Infected. If you've been infected, then they, the government or people, private institutions enabled by the government, overseen by the government, on the under the auspices of the government, should, uh, are enabled to go back in the history of people that you've interacted with in the past, however many days, track them down, tell them about your condition, track you down, try to get you to isolate, things of that sort. And in some countries, this has been done voluntarily. Actually, in most countries, this has been done voluntarily. In some, like India, this has not been done voluntarily. In fact, in some, this has been mandatory. Mandatory at gunpoint, mandatory at the, at the risk of going to prison if you don't comply. It's just been mandatory. It's been something that is just a very, very... Uh, devilish almost in how it's enacted and so most lovers of liberty or individual rights or freedom will immediately say well if this jeopardizes my right to privacy we don't want it and that's a good and that is a good instinct to have that is a good first instinct to have that is good i don't mind that i'm actually happy that some folks have that instinct that makes me very happy because if you have that instinct about any sort of action like this that means that you are in a propitious position to preserve that which allows you to have lifeblood, that which allows you to flourish, your rights. If you're in a propitious position to do that, then guess what? You're in a propitious position to live. But when you stay with that viewpoint, you do not progress beyond a certain mode of thinking, and you become just you, you, you become just like the static thinking enemies of freedom static thinking evangelists of statism static thinking evangelists of 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 collective action static thing you, your mind transfers to stasis stasis means that which does not change that which is settled and ordered forever and there's no dynamism there's no excitement there's no spark it's just how it is but freedom is not just how it is. Freedom is a, di a dynamic truth that is inherent to each and every one of us. So when you stay in a certain argumentative mode for more than a while, for more than a, I say, more than a certain period of time, when you just stay there permanently or mostly and you cling to that argument, not only are you embracing the idea of stasis, and therefore harming and affecting your mind with a bad habit that will disable it from being able to argue effectively for your positions, for your hot contents in the future, you are also not using the arguments that are at your disposal to the fullest of their ability to be used. But you're not. So that is what I really want to focus on when it comes to contact tracing. Privacy is, an, is a very important right. 
privacy, all rights of the individual are actually very, 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 very important. But guess what? And this is going to be very, very important for you guys to hear. Guess what? Just because privacy is that which is threatened more immediately does not mean privacy is that which is only threatened. There are plenty of other rights that are threatened by contact tracing. And you have to go deeper than one of them. Because when you say privacy is the reason I don't want contact tracing, guess what happens? Folks can say, well, your privacy on a scale, on a utilitarian scale, utilitarian calculus, and we'll go into the problems with utilitarian calculus in a moment. On a utilitarian calculus, your privacy does not matter as much as my safety. All this, all this equivocation nonsense, this linguistic wizardry, this deception of the highest order, this sort of spiritual confusion in the ideas realm, the cosmic realm. It's, I, can just, I can just see like a swirl of stardust that is blackened by confusion going around our heads invisibly and just making us think all these nonsense thoughts. And I can see it. It's disgusting me, actually. I can see it. I can literally see it. And we have to dispel that stardust of confusion and embrace a more clearer path. And you don't you and you don't do that by keeping with one single argument. You must go beyond the privacy argument. You should mention the autonomy argument. The fact that contact tracing violates my sovereignty as an individual, not only not not only to not to be monitored, but simply to be left alone to my own devices. It violates my sovereignty as an individual to associate as I would like in the sense that people who are, who have supposedly been in, been exposed, even if those people are negative, even if those folks have respirators on or masks on or whatever, they're still being urged and even some, in some instances compelled to stay away from me. It violates literally the entirety of my being. And guess what, guys? Rights are never, ever, 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 ever less than problems they face. Rights are never less than problems they face. There have been a lot of folks who have told me, well, Christian, you must you must balance rights between security. No, you, no, 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 because rights are security. It is a oxymoron. It is a false dichotomy to say rights versus security. No, rights are security, my friends. Rights are security. They're actually security of the most permanent and uh, and highest order. They're actually security that does not go away. That is that is, that is inviolable, sacred security. They're they they have a certain sanctity to them. Rights are security. They are not mutually exclusive. Partition of security. Rights are indeed security. Simple as that. And so. When we don't have our rights, we don't have our security. And folks may say to, our, to that argument, well, Christian, we mean bodily security. We mean you know, being healthy and everything. But guess what? Bodily security correlates with autonomy. Because if one is not able to use your body in the first place to how you see fit, then what happens is... The object you're trying to preserve whenever you go to the hospital, the doctors, i.e. your ability to live, becomes reduced. Freedom is inherently connected to being able to live life. 
simply existing and not in, in, in space, simply existing in space and staying there statically is not living, my friends. That's existing. It's not living. And so contact tracing actually brings together a whole host of issues that most people in the commentariat, most people who are writing and political writers don't consider. Oh, because they're impractical issues to consider. Oh, they're too abstract. Oh, it's this. We want data. We want that. Well, guess what, guys? Data comes after. Data succeeds ethics. Data succeeds principle. Data succeeds that. It is not it is not precede that. It is not one of the priests of these concepts. Data succeeds that. You cannot have an argument predicated solely upon data to the exclusion of ethics or principles or or, or freedom. You cannot do that. Even if you're not into the freedom thing, even if you're not even if you're not into natural rights, you cannot have an argument logically. Logically. To the exclusion of the principles upon which the argument is formed upon, data must be formed upon something. You have to have a premise. In a syllogism, you have to have a premise, a statement, statement two, conclusion. A simple syllogism, which is most arguments in politics are very simple syllogisms, just being honest. Not trying to insult anyone, not trying to make anyone feel as if they are idiots or they are not going deep enough, although you guys aren't really going deep enough. Not because you can't, but you don't. But you don't want to, because <laughs> it's it's too impractical, uh, according to some folks. Data doesn't does not precede these things. It comes after these things. If you're going to have data, you must have an argument. If you don't have an argument, your data is useless. Period. Using data or statistics without having an argument is like consistently hitting. The circle in the middle of an archer target practice image, and never hitting any other part of the uh, of the circle. It's like hitting the center of that circle consistently. And when there's one arrow lodged in the center of that circle, guess what happens? Other arrows cannot really get there without splintering that other arrow, or damaging the the target in some way, shape, or form. Whereas if you can t- cover the whole issue. The whole target, you don't have to worry about that as much, do you? Statistics make a point. But an archer, an archer of truth, an archer of political truth, is not just concerned with making a point, my friends. An archer is concerned with hitting the whole target. Because if you hit the center of a target and that target is still walking, what do you do? You still have an entire mass of flesh that you haven't hit yet. Making a point by itself is not enough. You have to do more than make one point. You have to make a holistic examination of the issue before you can talk about it. I do see justification for contact tracing in some instances. I do. I think that if contact tracing is voluntary, and if folks agree to it, and folks sign an, a, 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 a willing disclosure form... All right, let's have a legal regime around that that permits folks who want to do that kind of stuff to do it. But I do not for one second think that it is proper, ethical, or just for the government to engage in inspector gadget type activity and go back through my history, go back through my friend's history and their friend's history and their friend's history to simply see how many folks I've been talking to in the past, however many days they think a disease has been 
transmitted or or or, or has been conceived. Because right now, content tracing, just from a practical standpoint, yes, I will get practical for a second. Don't get too excited, guys. <laughs> just from a practical standpoint, without actually knowing a lot about this disease, we can't really effectively contact trace. But that's just, that's just that can be fixed once we have more information about it. Which is why it's not really a good argument to make those people who hate contact tracing. Because if this is the problem with practical arguments, if you say this cannot work, what if it works one day? You, your argument's gone. You don't have an argument anymore. If you say, hey, this thing right here has failed. If you say communism has never worked. Well, okay, that may have been true. This may have been true. What if it ends up working one day? What do you do then? It's a serious question, guys. What do you do then? You don't have an argument anymore. Because you put all of you, you put your stake, your logical stake into the into a heart that wasn't even fully alive in the first place. <laughs> you put your stake and you didn't even kill something. You simply pierced dead matter. You pierced dead matter. You made a point, but it wasn't a very effective point overall. Its effectiveness comes into fruition, comes into consciousness. Because so many folks in the public sphere who disdain communism tend to use that argument so often that it becomes a part of the lexicon. And look, I myself do not like communism. I think it's evil, it's treacherous, it's vile. But there are ethical, principled, moral reasons as to why it's evil and vile. You don't need data to make an ethical point. Similarly, this Coronavirus has exposed a cult of data, a cult of scientism that is actively ignorant of individual rights, that is actively ignorant of the human condition, that is actively ignorant of anything that will actually have permanent principal effect in both preserving rights and preserving our security, that is actively ignorant of anything that is not crunched down or reduced to numbers, guess what? As the great Rosewood Lane said, and give me liberty, as the great Rosewood Lane said, we need to look more at people and circumstances and empirical observations of people and circumstances more than we do at numbers and of metrics, of magical metrics that are being used like a input-output machine to find solutions. There is no input-output machine for the coronavirus. There is no input-output machine for finding answers to complex problems in life. There is an input-output machine in terms of effort, of course, but effort is not necessarily does not necessarily give you the answer that you may need into any problem, right? So if you put effort into work, well, you'll get something out of that. It's not as short what you'll what you get out of that. But if you put effort into your work, something will come about. It may, it may be small, it may be large. It may be insignificant. It might be significant. It might be propitious. It might be disastrous. Whatever it might be. So there are certain principles. There are certain universals to the natural law that, and to natural rights in general and to the natural order that we should understand. You sow, you reap. But you cannot reduce very complex questions to this kind of framework. You cannot do that and still be argumentatively sound. 
So that is where I stand on it, guys. You have to really attack contact tracing at its root. You cannot rely on data because guess what? The data is what they what a lot of folks are using to push these pernicious ideas. You must couple data and statistics and all that kind of stuff with a reliance, with a sort of a, 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 a sort of guiding lens, a guiding principle, a guiding prism of philosophy. I don't care if you're not even in the freedom tradition like I am. You can do other things as well. So that's just that's what I think about contact tracing. I think that it's a bad idea for ethical reasons, and I think that we need to really find a different way. If, it, if it's not forced, and if it's voluntary, then you can do it. But guess what? It's going to be very hard to, voluntar- to voluntarily go back through a bunch of people's records and their activities and make them keep a log of their activities or what have you to try to find a solution to a disease that we don't know very much about. That's not very effective or ethical, in my opinion. <laughs> anyway... Nancy Pelosi, we got 10 minutes left. Nancy Pelosi is calling. Today, she said, Wednesday, she said that the president has exactly he has doggy doo on his shoes. And just for you guys who didn't hear at the beginning of the show or who don't know, on Monday, Nancy Pelosi called the president morbidly obese. On Tuesday, the next day after, the president said, I don't address that. Then he said that she had mental problems. And today, on Wednesday, she's saying, You're acting like you have doggy doo on you, on your shoe, and you are a some big word that I that escapes me right now, and I don't mind using big words. In fact, as all of you know, I, I do enjoy the English language quite a bit, but some very odd word that Nancy Pelosi has absolutely no business using, by the way, because she probably didn't even know what it means. She said that. She said that's what it is. Listen, guys, governance, when you're in a collaborative body, what you're dealing with, you're dealing with two things. You're dealing with political passions, and you're dealing with natural human instincts. When you couple political passions, which go beyond the scope of natural human instincts, and the scope of natural human instincts, guys, is related primarily on an individual level, whereas political passions by their nature are related primarily on a fundamental, universal, wide-scale level, you get very, very precarious situations. You get humanity at its worst. You get individuals not thinking intellectually or logically, but thinking how they would think if they were an avatar or if they were a representative of what of what they think a broad swath of their support base thinks. You have a sort of odd shamanism, an odd channeling, of the passions of various bases being being conveyed through both Trump and Pelosi respectively. And this really underlies that dichotomy between the human instinct and the political passions that all culminate together and synchronize together within the political context. This is some interesting stuff, guys. Because it would lead you to believe that both Pelosi and Trump are essentially fourth graders. But when you look at a lot of Americans read on a certain level, I believe I don't know this. I don't know exactly what level it was, but I, it, I do know it was in grade, a grade school level. 
when you look at the the average attention span of a, of a reader, which is a few seconds at the highest and a few moments at the highest as well, depending on the kind of article they're reading, when you look at a lot of the digitization, the fact of, and the effect of the digitization of a lot of medium on content on attention spans and on actual study, and you see the negative core. When you look at that kind of stuff, and again, data is not everything. We should look at people over data, but sometimes data, when it's informed by ethical presupposition, can be good. So when you look at all that kind of stuff, I'm not even saying that stuff is right either. I'm saying this is what these politicians look at because they don't, they're 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 small minded. They can't really go beyond that and look at principle. When you look at that kind of stuff, it makes sense as to why they're act, acting like how they're acting. It makes total sense. It's the same reason those uh, the the British uh, the British Parliament uh, still has House of Commons. It's the reason they still have that uh, the Prime Minister's questions. Not because they really want to look, they, they, they want to go back to the 1700s and shout and, and, and act like they're a bunch of uh, royal barristers and royal politicians in a court. No, not because of, of anything like that. Not because they actually want to get involved in this sort of archaic haggling that really makes no sense and just is channels some of the more um, broader cultural aspects of Britain. But be simply because that is what is expected of them vis-a-vis tradition, and there are a lot of folks in Britain that are traditional, although with the rise of republicanism in Britain, that's kind of changing, that want that kind of stuff, that want that kind of activity, that want that kind of performance from them. That's what you're seeing here. You're seeing Pelosi and Trump have a tension between their natural instincts and political passions and channel that tension to the expectations of their base. This makes sense because Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party at the moment. He has a massive base, which has delivered the Republican Party a lot of victories recent, the past few years. And then Nancy Pelosi, it was right now, is the head is the headmaster almost of the Democratic Party, at least in the House and in Congress. And she is a sort of she's a sort of wise lady, a sort of sage almost of of these people. Of uh, of these politicians, whenever AOC acts up, who they, who they call Nancy Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi is the matriarch of the Democratic Party. So, in those two roles, they have to embody a certain type of expectation. If they do not embody that expectation, they fail their base. That's why, if you're a Republican, you're expected to report to support Republican candidates. If you don't, you fail. You fail your base, allegedly. Well, I guess you do fail your base. You don't really fail anything beyond that. You don't. You don't fail in anything meaningful. You, 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 you fail in being. Uh, you fail. You fail in, in being simple-minded. You fail in being <laughs> uh, a sort of a intellectual slave to an, an, an institution. You fail at being complicit. Is what you fail at when you, when you don't support. When you support principle over the powerful party. You fail. That's what you fail at. You don't really tell anything meaningful, so don't worry about that. But Democrats are expected to do the same exact thing. If they don't support the candidates, guess what? They, they filled their base. They filled their party. And we have to recognize this, not to deride anyone, not to attack anyone, but to truly understand that cosmic tension between our instincts, that which comes natural to us, and a superficial artificially imposed set of standards that we are expected to push forward through our instincts, i.e. the, indeed, political passions. That's what we're seeing there. That's what we're seeing there.
we are seeing that kind of stuff manifest and it's just very interesting it's very 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 interesting so in our last thing to talk about let's talk unemployment numbers unemployment numbers are quite interesting right now so according to 538.com according to 538.com there was a headline that was written on May 15th written by Amelia Thompson Devo I'm probably saying that wrong and it says many Americans are getting more money from unemployment than they were from their jobs this has been a quintessential criticism that many Republican politicians have been making of a lot of government programs for a very long while but on the hills of a new study from folks at the University of Chicago, Peter uh, Genong, Pascal No, and Joseph Va- Vavra, again, excuse my, my poor pronunciation of these words, all names are not made equal, all names, some names are more hard to pronounce than others, <laughs> uh, uh, the article says that in a study produced by economists at the University of Chicago, which uses government data from 2019 to estimate that 68% of unemployed workers who can receive benefits are eligible for payments that are greater than their lost earnings. They also found that the estimated median replacement rate, the share of workers of a worker's original weekly salary that is being replaced by unemployment benefits, is 134%, or more than one-third of their original wage. So essentially, especially during COVID, unemployment numbers are being jacked up, and people are, a lot of them are claiming unemployment and not really going back to work, essentially. What these economists are finding. And the there will be a link to the article into the description of this podcast, but... I think a lot of it's very interesting. It's interesting because unemployment is not considered welfare, but in a sense it kind of is because when you pay taxes to the government, they redistribute the money around the system, and who knows whose money you're getting when you get an unemployment check. I mean, it's not your money because the government took the money from other people and it's all in a pot, and when you get things in a pot, it becomes very nebulous as to whose is whose. It becomes, that becomes very unencumbered incredibly. So I would just leave you guys with this. If you're struggling during this pandemic, if you are really, 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 really suffering, don't feel bad for taking unemployment. Because I know a lot of my listeners are conservatives or libertarians. They're very independent-minded people. But just recognize that until you can get up on your feet, you should be cautious of how much you allow the system, system to give you. Because a sense of security, a sense of financial security especially, should not come from anyone who is not you or that is not your own labor and your own blood, sweat, and tears. You, my friends, are your own standard of value. You, my friends, are the geniuses, the spiritual geniuses that were planted into this world by whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, chance, want to call it fate, want to call it God, want to call it happenstance, whatever you want to call it, you are here. We know that you are here as an individual. And you, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what is going on in your life, have the ultimate power and the ultimate authority to craft your future, craft your security, and craft your life the way you want to. Don't let an external force like the government, take that from you. Until next time, folks, I love you all. Thank you for listening, and please stay pensive.